Welcome to this episode of the Telco Talks podcast series, focusing on topical issues in the telecommunications industry. I'm Dipti Govind, a technical accounting manager in the PwC South African practice, and I will be your host. Our aim is to keep you up to date on key accounting issues in the telecommunications industry. Joining me on this podcast is Tamesha Chetty, a technical accounting manager also in the PwC South African practice. Welcome, Tamesha. It's great to have you join us again on the podcast series. Hi, Dipti. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. So today we're going to be chatting about IFRS 16 leases, focusing on sale and leaseback transactions, which has been quite a topical area. Whilst the leasing standard has been in effect for at least two years now for many entities, it appears that there are still quite a few discussions taking place around the application of the leases standard. That's correct, Dipti. While entities have become more familiar and more comfortable with IFRS 16, there are still some complexities that arise, and one of these being sale and leaseback transactions. During the course of 2020, the IFRS Interpretations Committee had also received requests regarding sale and leaseback transactions, so there's still quite a lot to talk about regarding leases. I'm quite keen to hear about the IFRIC discussions. However, before we get into that, would you mind reminding our listeners what exactly a sale and leaseback transaction is? Sure. Uh, a sale and leaseback transaction is a transaction in which the owner of an asset sells the asset and then leases it back from the buyer. So for example, a telco operator may sell a cell phone tower that it owns to a tower company and then leases the cell phone tower back. So entities often enter into such arrangements if they want to raise capital, but also still want to have access to and use of the underlying asset. From an accounting perspective, the seller lessee must determine if the transaction qualifies as a sale for which revenue is recognized or whether the transaction represents a collateralized borrowing or financing arrangement. Simplistically, this means that it needs to be assessed whether the transfer of the asset qualifies as a sale using the principles of IFRS 15, and whether the buyer lesser obtains control of the underlying asset. Could you perhaps also briefly explain what happens if the transfer does not qualify as a sale? If the transfer does not qualify as a sale under IFRS 15, the seller lessee does not de-recognize the transferred asset and it accounts for the cash received as a financial liability. From the buyer lessor's perspective, the transferred asset is not recognized and instead it accounts for the cash paid as a financial asset, so in other words, a receivable. Thanks for sharing that understanding, Thamesha. Now let's get into the intricacies around sale and leaseback. Can you talk us through the discussions that have been taking place at the IFRIC? Sure, Dipti. An agenda decision was finalized in June last year regarding a request the committee received about how to measure the right of use asset in a sale and leaseback transaction when there are only variable lease payments. I haven't seen this before in practice, but I'm assuming that this would be important to understand as the measurement of the right of use asset affects the gain or loss that is recognized at the date of the transaction. That's spot on. So to briefly summarize the details of the fact pattern described in the request, 
An entity sold an item of PPE to another entity and then leased the asset back. The transfer of the PPE qualifies as a sale in accordance with IFRS 15. And the payments for the lease are market rates and include variable lease payments. So these variable lease payments are not in substance fixed payments. The committee observed that the seller lessee would measure the right of use asset arising from the leaseback at the proportion of the previous carrying amount of the asset that relates to the right of use retained by the seller lessee. This means that only the amount of any gain or loss that relates to the rights transferred to the buyer lessor shall be recognized by the seller lessee. Wow, that is quite a lot to take in. Can this perhaps be broken down and explained by way of an example? Certainly. Let's assume the same facts that I just mentioned, which was described in the fact pattern in the request, and put these into numbers. If the carrying amount of the PPE at the date of transaction is 1 million, the amount paid by the buyer for the PPE, which is also the fair value of the PPE, is 1.8 million, and the present value of the expected payments for the lease is 450,000. Now, IFRA 16 does not prescribe a method for determining the proportion of the previous carrying amount of the asset that relates to the right of use retained by the seller lessee. So using this example, one way to determine this proportion could be by comparing the present value of the expected lease payments, including the variable lease payments of 450000 with the fair value of the PPE at the date of the transaction being $1.8 million. 450,000 divided by 1.8 million gets you to 25%. So therefore, the proportion of the right of use retained is 25%. Consequently, the proportion of the PPE that relates the rights transferred to the bio-lessor is 75%. I see. So following what you are saying, does that mean that the right of use asset will be measured at 250,000? Yes, that's correct, Dipti. The 250,000 at which the right of use asset is measured is determined by using the 25%. So again, that being the proportion of the right of use retained, multiplied by the carrying amount of the PPE of 1 million. A gain of 600,000 will be recognized. And this gain is determined taking into account the proportion of the PPE that relates to the rights transferred. So being the 75%, as we just noted, multiplied by the total gain on the sale of the PPE of 800,000, which is calculated as the amount paid of 1.8 million, less the carrying amount of 1 million. I've definitely learned something new today about sale and leaseback transactions. Is there anything else that our listeners should be aware of? Yes, there is one more principle that I would like to highlight, and this relates to the sale of an asset in a corporate wrapper, which is subsequently leased back. There was a request submitted to the IFRIC in September last year, which described a scenario where an entity owns 100% of the equity in a subsidiary. The only asset in the subsidiary is a building, and it has no liabilities, and the building is not a business as defined by IFRIC's three business combinations. The entity legally sells the shares in the subsidiary which holds the building and loses control of the subsidiary in accordance with IFRS 10. However, the entity subsequently leases the building back and the transfer of the building qualifies as a sale in accordance with IFRS 15. In this case, does the entity apply the requirements of IFRS 10 to account for the loss of control of the subsidiary or the requirements of IFRS 16 
regarding the accounting for sale and leaseback transactions? That's an excellent question, Dipti. And the request asked how the entity should calculate the gain or loss on the sale if it applies the sale and leaseback guidance per IFRS 16 in its consolidated financial statements. Now, if IFRS 16 is applied, only a partial gain will be recognized, as this will be this will follow the approach we spoke about a few minutes ago, whereby the right of use asset will be measured at the proportion of the previous carrying amount of the building that relates to the right of use it retains, and accordingly only the amount of the gain that relates to the rights transferred to the buyer lessor is recognized. So in the example we used earlier, that gain was calculated as 600,000. Under IFRS 10, however, a full gain or loss will be recognized from the sale of the entity's equity interest in the subsidiary. So assuming in the example we spoke about, the item of PPE was included in a subsidiary, which was, which was disposed of, and the carrying value of the PPE and therefore the net assets of the subsidiary is 1 million, and the equity interest in the subsidiary was sold for 1.8 million, applying IFRS 10, a gain of 800,000 will then be recognized. So what did the committee conclude? In the staff's view, the entity's loss of control in the subsidiary is within the scope of IFRS 10, and the transaction is also a sale and leaseback transaction to which the sale and leaseback requirements in IFRS 16 apply. So essentially, both standards will apply. They explained that the first step would be to account for the loss of sale of the subsidiary in accordance with IFRS 10, particularly paragraph B98, which requires the entity to de-recognize the building held by the subsidiary and recognize the fair value of the consideration received. Secondly, as the transfer of the building satisfies the requirements in IFRS 15 to be accounted for as a sale of the building, the entity therefore applies paragraph 100A of IFRS 16 to measure the right of use asset and determine the gain or loss, which will only be a partial gain or loss as we've just discussed. There was a tentative agenda decision that was issued with with regards to this in November 2020 and was brought back to the IFRIC this year. Can you shed some light on what took place during this meeting? Certainly. After the tentative agenda decision was released in November last year, there were 19 comment letters that were received as the tentative agenda decision sparked quite a lot of debate about the broader impact this may have for similar but more complex scenarios, as the fact pattern described in the request is not necessarily what entities may see very often in practice. For example, will the analysis be different if the entity disposes of its subsidiary that contains multiple assets and liabilities, and which is a business as defined? Or what will the outcome be if the entity sells less than 100% of the equity interest in a subsidiary? While the members of the committee agreed with the analysis in the tentative agenda decision for the narrow fact pattern that was described in the request, for the concerns that I just mentioned and how far the agenda decision would have to be applied to more complex examples, a majority of the members agreed to perform a narrow scope standard setting um, to address the issue. Thanks for that update, Damesha, and thank you for taking us through this very topical issue, which I'm sure our listeners will find valuable. You're welcome, Dipti, and thank you for having me back on the podcast. This brings us to the end of this episode of Talco Talks. Stay tuned for the next exciting episode where we will explore disruptors in the telco industry, such as satellites and the evolution of 5G.
This podcast is brought to you by PwC, All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the South African member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com forward slash structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.